Good day, this is Sabrina Marie, host of the Building Abundance Success Series. Our primetime mastermind that promotes empowered focus, decisive action, and inspired outcome. Our spotlight is on personal reinvention. It's part two of my interview with guest sales trainer and coach, Sandy Chassel. Enjoy. I know a lot of pressure and stress can uh, <laughs> really make you uh, unhappy, and then it can take its toll physically. What happened? Well, it's I went on for years not changing, and at the time I didn't understand that the reason I wasn't changing was just plain old garden variety fear. I was afraid to start over. I was afraid to lose the income. I was making very good money. Uh, I was afraid, you know, what, what would I do? You know, I've got uh, a big home and a family and, and t- the two cars and, you know, what would I do? How would I do that? And so I stayed at it until I believed that I got physically sick from the stress of doing something that I didn't want to do day after day for, and I'm not just talking about, you know, a few hours a day. I'm talking about getting up at 5.30 or 6 in the morning and finishing up uh, after midnight in, in some uh, some municipal board or, or, or a courtroom. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, it reached a point where I found out that I had colon cancer Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, but even before it reached that point, I actually tried to move 50 miles away from the office uh, to Princeton, New Jersey, mm-hmm. where um, I would have to drive so long that maybe I would force myself out of doing that work. Wow! And then they told me you're sick. Now I know that even happy, well-adjusted people get sick. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, get cancer. It, but but I do believe that if there are three basic factors, heredity, environment, uh, and your immune system, my immune system took a look down the road and said, you're going to be doing this for the rest of your life, and this is horrible. You might as well end it now. Yeah, I read that in your book, in the High Diving Board. And uh, one of the things that sticks out to me, you said you hated doing what you were doing, but you had no idea what to do, and you look down the road and all you could see were hours and weeks of adventureless, joyless, passionless, unfulfilling work followed by death. What's the point? Wow. (laughs) And, and I mean, if that's really the way you're thinking, and, and, I mean, you're an expert on this, so you know, if that's the way you're thinking, how can your body not react to that? Right. And so there I was, uh, and I mean, there were so many signs. I mean, I had symptoms that I was sick that I was ignoring and almost ignored them too long. Um, that 50-mile trip from the central part of New Jersey to the northern part of New Jersey, um, it happened that on a um, uh, on December 31st of 1991, I was taking my two daughters up to see their old babysitter in my wife's car, and because the car seemed to be cold and I didn't know where the heater was, I looked around for the heater, drifted off the road, and flipped over and over and over in the median at 65 miles an hour, uh, and we lived through that. Mm-hmm. So when the dust cleared 
Uh, and I don't mean to make a pun out of it, but, but um, after living through that and seeing that we all came out with relatively small injuries, uh, I said, you know, whatever these symptoms are, I ought to just go get them checked out. It can't be that. If I live through this, it can't be that bad. And that's how they discovered the cancer. And that led to a year of surgeries and chemo and radiation and, you know, and, um, uh, things that uh, I, you know, sometimes I don't even want to talk about or think about. Uh, but, uh, during that year, everything unraveled. Uh, I had no income because I was too sick to work. My weight dropped. Uh, from a healthy 155 pounds to 112 pounds. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I literally had to be held up when I took a walk around the block. I couldn't go too far from home. Uh, and clients that loved me, I mean, despite the fact I hated what I was doing, um, they told me I did a, a great job. Uh, the clients who love me said, you know, I can't wait for you. I have to get help. And, of course, once they go, uh, they um, they go for good for the most part. Uh, yeah, and I so was wondering I, about that. Um, yeah. Stop at that point because you went through um, something physical. You went through the depletion and almost the ending of your life. Yeah. And uh, there are lessons I know that you, you learn in illness, there's just no way you can go back to being the same, even if you are healed. And yeah. when I say healed, people say, oh, I've been cured. Yes and no. And I wanted to bring that out in this segment because you're never the same after that. Even if you pull through, there are a lot of lessons you've learned along the way, and you're looking at things differently. Tell us about that part. Well, that's that's for sure. And, you know, the interesting thing is you would think when I found out in 19, at the end of 1992, I started to gain weight. They weren't finding any recurrences. Mm -hmm. uh, I was healing from the second surgery. Mm -hmm. um, so I started to have an easier time getting around. Mm -hmm. And you would think that I'd be elated, that I would look at the world and be so excited to be alive that I'd be out there, you know, just, just uh, singing for joy. And instead, I was more depressed than ever because all I could focus on was... Uh, I had no money, uh, I had uh, no more clients, I'd be starting the law practice all over again. Uh, and uh, you would think that, you know, I, the, the lessons would be, you know, this this is great, you're getting a second chance. And it wasn't that way at all for almost five years, it wasn't mm -hmm. that way. Because you'd and, gone through the physical, you'd gone through all the bouts of the weight loss and then the chemo and the radiation. And in one part in the book you mentioned about uh, leaving, you know, people who you would return to the hospital and they wouldn't be there. That yeah, can't help well, but affect your outlook on not only yourself, but your family and your future. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, the first time was the surgery for the cancer. And the roommate I had was a guy, you know, at that age, 41, I was young uh, for the, you know, for colon cancer. But there was a 29-year-old in the room uh, who was going through the same thing, and he didn't make it. 
Mm-hmm. And so you, you would think, uh, oh my gosh, you know, I made it. Mm-hmm. Uh, isn't that, isn't that wonderful? Shouldn't I be elated? And then the second time there were major complications that required a uh, surgery that I think was a lot more extensive than the first one. And when I was done with that surgery, I was in the room with somebody who was not going to be going home. Mm-hmm. And I just said, please get me out of here. I, you know, please, you know, I, I need to be out of here. I need to be somewhere where I feel safe. Right. And um, there wasn't any place safe at that time. But something did happen where I started to look and understand the gift that I had been given. And, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's weird to be calling that a gift because it's hard to still imagine it that way. Well, I can but, relate. <laughs> I know. I can, but, I can relate. Many people who haven't gone through, they, they can't relate. But you, I can relate to what you're saying uh, a whole lot in that you do get a gift. Uh, you know, you don't see it at the time you're going through the nightmare, but uh, there is a silver lining in there. Tell us yeah. about that. And and so, I don't know when exactly it was, uh, but someone had recommended that I read uh, some books because I was stuck. I was rebuilding a law practice I hated. Uh, I uh, was afraid still to change, even though I had, I mean, I had survived near-death experiences. You would think, what would I be afraid of now? I was afraid still to change, and I still didn't recognize it as fear. Uh, but I st- someone gave me um, a couple of uh, good books to read on my situation, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden I started to recognize, you know, it doesn't matter how long you live, it's how you live while you're here. Mm-hmm. And uh, that recognition got me back on my feet and starting to look for what I really wanted to do. And that's how I started to transition out of practicing law and into something that for me was the right thing to be doing. In those lessons that you learned came your first book, The High Diving Board, and it contains a lot of the lessons that uh, you experienced. And uh, I wanted you to try to share some of those lessons with us. Yeah, okay. Um, the the first thing I, I was um, with, and I start the book with a story about being with my daughter when she's auditioning for a play, and it occurred to me that uh, I, if this was all about fear, when I made that recognition that this was all about fear, it occurred to me that fear wasn't the problem. It's okay if you have fear. We all have fears of things. It's The question is, what's the response that you're giving to the fear? In my case, it was paralysis, not moving, not changing, not even believing that you knew what you wanted to do. Mm-hmm. It was just like, I don't know. I can't think that, or it's too scary to think about it. And most people, when they say, I'd like to change, but I don't know what I want to do, Mm -hmm. um, they know. They know. There's a part of us that remembers that, you know, when we were were four years old, we were geniuses, and and what we were geniuses at, they know. But Mm -hmm. they can't even think about it. It's too scary to even go there. And I realized that, you know, it's okay if you have those feelings. Um, but if your response is back away, it's not okay, back away, 
Uh, that's a learned response. I mean, you put your hand on a hot stove, you learn to take it off. You stepped in the street and your mother yelled at you and all those churning feelings inside, the fear feelings made you back away the next time you put your foot in the street. But as an adult, when it's about a career or a change of life or something that, uh, you know, you really want that you're not pursuing, it's it's not okay to have those feelings. It's okay to be afraid, but you have to do it anyway. Right. And and part of the revelation there was that the back away response, the fight or flight response, the flight response was a learned response. Right. When you were in that situation, you learned don't do anything, back away from it, don't think about it. And that you could be reprogrammed, literally, you could relearn a better response, which is not that it's not okay back away, but it's okay to be afraid. But if this is something you really want, you just have to do it anyway. Well, many people, they hear that and they hear what you're saying, but because they've been conditioned through what mom, dad, teacher, society um, have uh, told them, they do back away from their dream. They really do. They run in the opposite direction. It might be even a wish or something in their heart, but they just don't go after it. When you have something catastrophic happen in your life and uh, you finally say, hey, enough is enough, I'm going to go for it, you've got to prod, something that will push you out there a little bit. Um, in your practice, going from your practice to going through your health situation and then rebuilding how much of that did you take with you and that you, hey, now I'm, I'm not going to be the average person in practice. I, this is just crazy. I can't go out on my own. How much of those voices from your past held you back? Wow, it's all about those voices. You know, I, I in the book I call it the fear factor, and I came up with that phrase long before the TV show by the same name. <laughs> it, it was just like you get the, the butterflies in your stomach and the sweaty palms and your heart is pounding, and there's that little voice in your head. It's a, it, it's the um, uh, Robinson family voice, danger, Will Robinson, danger, danger. <laughs> And, and you're, you're, it makes you back away. And those are all things that I took with me. And whether it was my mother's voice or my grandfather's, it didn't matter whose voice it was, but it was loud and it was screaming at me. You can't change. This is all you know. Changing is, and, and you know, here I am. I'm broke anyway. Uh, I could start anything I want and I'm still too afraid to move. And, uh, what a, what what a um thing for that for me but ju- i just imagine people who are healthy that haven't been through crisis how could they possibly break away from it so what it did was it drove me to look for ways to get away from it and i started to see that there were steps that could be taken the first one was to write down what i wanted okay. you know not not filter it out, not try to uh, try to uh, pretend I don't have something I wanted. I knew I wanted to speak. I knew I wanted to write. I knew I, I, I knew I didn't know exactly how, but there were things that I knew I wanted. I knew that uh, I wanted to teach in a sense. Uh, you know, coaching was something that just kind of came as part of the package. Mm-hmm. Uh, I knew I wanted to do those things. Put it in writing. 
And then it was about, okay, let's write to myself that I'm committing to make a change in my life. Mm-hmm. And so step one was to put it in writing. And then step two was, okay, you had these dreams. You dreamt of being an actor. You dreamt of, of being out uh, in front of people performing. It took the form of being a lawyer, and that didn't turn out the way you thought it would. How about revisiting those dreams? And, and that became step two. Let's write that down, too. And then step three became, well, okay, even if I had a picture of me being on stage, it didn't have to be stage. Step three was explore what I really wanted underneath the underlying dream. Mm-hmm. And so I started to look at that and say, well, okay, the underlying dream here is to get out in front of people and talk about things that I'd really like to talk about, that I'd like to share, that I'd like to help them with. And so I was starting very slowly to pull myself out And then I realized that either I was going to um, be so excited about doing it that I'd move forward or so afraid of it that I wouldn't, and I tried to imagine what the pain would be like if I was stuck in this limbo or I went back to practice law and I just kept doing it. And I said, well, that's a step. Let's let's feel the pain. Let's write down how great I'll feel if I do it and how terrible I'll feel if I don't. And so I was forming what turned out to be the 10 steps that uh, go into the high diving board that I use in my coaching, that I use, you know, that I, that I put into the book. You're talking about um, overcoming fears, and, you know, people face fears every day, especially now in these economic times. You've got a lot of uh, people either changing careers and, you know, leaving jobs and going into business for themselves. And um, I wanted you, with your experience in reinventing yourself, um, to talk about some of the things in fear, like the butt monster. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, I was there. There are people have different names for these things Uh, in uh, coaching. They sometimes call what I call the butt monster. That's B U T, not B U T T. But monster, uh, some of them call it the gremlin, you know, the voice in your head that tells you not to do something, you're getting too close, it's danger, the, the danger will Robinson voice, whosever voice mm-hmm. that is. And I remember I started that show. To... <laughs> <laughs> I remember, I mean, warning, warning, warning. Warning, warning, that's and right. And you've yeah. got uh, Dr. Smith who's scared as, I don't know what. I don't even know why he was on the trip. I think he stole away on the ship or something like that. It's a, I, I, I've been to the older shows, you know, if I ever can see them in rerun, because I was yeah. around when they when they first were there. But you notice how Will Robinson, the innocence of a kid, he's just sort of looking around at Dr. Smith like, oh, please, <laughs> what are you afraid of? <laughs> it was so yeah, funny. Yeah, And and. Um, I, that's that's the kind of thing that goes through people's heads. You start to get afraid. So I figured out that what people are doing is say, well, you know, I'd really like to do this, uh, Sabrina Marie, but, uh, you know, I can't because. And that word but keeps popping up in my own conversation and in other people's conversations. And every time I hear it now when I'm coaching someone, I go after it because that's the butt monster. And he says things like, but, or if only, 
um, things like that. And this is a creature. I, I gave it, a, a, you know, I made it uh, an animated creature. This is a, a creature that's kind of a pet that our parents give us when we're very little. And we feed it and nurture it and make it grow. And then we stand it at the wall of what I call our safe neighborhood. See, a lot of people talk about comfort zone. Well, mm-hmm. I wasn't comfortable. I couldn't call that a comfort zone. It was just less scary in here than it was out there wherever, you know, wherever my dreams were. They were out there and that was more scary. And the butt monster's job was to every time I, I expressed the desire to go out there where they were, he had to throw a butt at me. He had to say, uh, yeah, I'd really like to do that, but, you know, I don't have the money, I don't have the time, I don't have the right education, I don't have this, I don't... And, and so uh, it's something we created to keep us in that safe neighborhood. Now, as a kid, the safe neighborhood's a physical place. You know, you're allowed to crawl around the room, then you're allowed to crawl around the house, then maybe you can go downstairs if your mom's watching you, and then the safe neighborhood expands, so now you can go around the block without your mom, but don't cross the street, and then eventually you're allowed to cross the street at the corner if you're very careful. But as an adult, we create our own safe neighborhoods that are psychological neighborhoods. Uh, we want to kind of go to the same job and do the same routine. And we may be miserable. At it. Now, if we're happy at it, there's no problem, but we may be miserable at it. And so it's it's not a comfort zone, but it's safe. It's like we know what to expect when we go into that job we hate and deal with that boss we don't want to be with. We know exactly what we're going to get. It's not comfortable, but it's safe. So those are some of the things that I started to give life to when I wrote the book, Bud Monster, Safe Neighborhood, uh, things like that where, you know, it's clear that what we're talking about is fears that paralyze you. So I took a look at the things that I was afraid of, and then when I started helping other people, I took a look at the things they were afraid of, and I boiled it really down to seven paralyzing fears, things that we're strong enough. I mean, we all have fears. You know, there's people are uh, afraid of belly button lint. I mean, people are afraid of <laughs> all kinds of things. We all have fears. Uh, but but when you get right down to it, um, the first one was fear of failing. The second one was fear of being embarrassed. The third one was fear of making a mistake or committing yourself to the wrong thing. The fourth one was fear of being rejected, which would make you alone and make you an outcast. The fifth one was fear of climbing too high. You know, we don't deserve to have our dreams. How dare us try? We're not worthy to to try. Um, The sixth one was a fear that we're not ready or capable, that we're inadequate somewhere. And the seventh one was the most interesting to me, the fear of success. And I truly believe that more people are afraid that they're actually going to get what they want if they pursue it uh, than they are they won't. Wow. Yeah, you're mentioning many of these fears. Were these fears going, and I know some of them were, and how deep were they going through your mind when you were in your reinvention stage? You know, you have two daughters and you have other family, and I'm sure that, you know, they're they're looking up to daddy. They're looking up to you as a husband, as a community person, and then, of course, as a person in a big, thriving firm at one point in time. What fears did you have to overcome just to get to the point of reinvention of uh, Spanish Yourself? 
Oh, Sabrina Marie, I think I had most of them. Not all of them, but most <laughs> of them. And, you know, part of it was well-meaning people, people who really care about you mm-hmm. uh, are going to say, you're crazy, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? You know, uh, someone actually said to me, you know, uh, how could you do this to your daughters? You, you live in this nice house. They can go to whatever school they want. You know, uh, you're, you're risking that this is all going to go away. How could you do that to them? And it's one of the things that held me in my place year after year. Like, well, yeah, it would be starting over. And we never save enough money for me, like, to, to put together enough money to go out and do something different and have a cushion. And um, how could I do it to my daughters? But after being sick and after understanding about the fear and, you know, starting to put together the plan of how you get out of being afraid, I looked at it again and said uh, to myself, how could I do the other thing to my daughters? How could I go to work every day to a job that I hated, that they knew I hated, and watch them grow up knowing that their daddy was just going to work to keep them in their clothes and to keep them in the the nice things that they had, and that he wasn't being true to himself and he wasn't doing what he really wanted to do with his life. And that started to make it a lot easier. You know? Oh, for sure. I, I'm sure it did because not only spiritually are you, you know, lifting a burden from you, you know, so you can yeah. be the best you you could be, but also on the other flip side, you're teaching your daughters that you can reinvent from the status quo. And what we're going through in this, these economic times, you know, you've got um, not only the battle economically, but you've got the culture being um redefined as well as generations it used to be when you went to school a good school a good college you could have a good job for a long period of time what your daughters were saying is okay so you can have all that well maybe that's not necessarily the way it you know you want it to go or maybe that was for a certain point in time but you've got to change and the reason why I'm bringing this up is because there's many people who get in that comfortability stage they are great with that comfort zone they're really hurting now because they've never had a challenge. They've always had that status quo. Their people have been in jobs for a long period of time or always at least been working that have been out. What do you say to those people? You've gone on both sides. You've done the traditional thing you've been successful at. You've gone successfully through a trying time. So you've got that advantage. What would you say to people out there now? I believe, Sabrina, that it's about choosing choosing to be a victim or mm-hmm. choosing to be what I call an action hero, what my friend Steve Chandler calls an owner, either be a victim or an action hero. Uh, I had this revelation at, near the end of writing the book uh, that worked this way. It was like I woke up from a dream and I realized that if I wanted to right now I could write the story of my life. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't know what the middle chapters would necessarily be, but I'd know how I'd want it to turn out. Mm -hmm. You're standing at your 100th birthday party, and you look back at your life, and there's all your family, all the people you love out in front of you, and they're waiting for you to tell them something. And and your little great-grandson stands up and says, Grandpa, tell us the story of your life. And what's that story going to be? 
Mm-hmm. And you could really write that story right now, tonight, and say, I know what that story is going to be. I don't know what the middle chapters are like. I don't know what hardships and roadblocks and obstacles I'm going to have to deal with. But I know how I want the story to end. And all I have to do then is live the story. Or you could be standing in that room at 100 years old at your 100th birthday party and you'd be telling the story of your life, but you wouldn't want them to use you as an example because they know and you know that you didn't do what you wanted to do and you weren't able to give to your family and give to the world what you wanted to give. And too many people get stuck in that place where they're being victimized. They're, they're being victimized by the economy uh, instead of getting creative and starting to think of ways to do things and try things, they just say, I can't, it's terrible, uh, you know, I can't uh, find any kind of work, I can't do anything. And uh, it, it's really just about a choice. And if 